morning we heard about the person of Christ, second week in a row, and that's wonderful. It's some emphasis on this glorious person. Thinking at the beginning of Advent, how appropriate it might be to talk about his mother and the relationship between the Lord Jesus and his mother. How do we think of Mary, and how do we think of that relationship? Well, if some of you were born in the Roman Catholic Church, or for all practical purposes, might as well have been. You grew up there, a church that teaches that, at least by the middle of the 19th century, Mary was thought of as being conceived herself without original sin. Then it was declared that by God's grace through Christ, she remained sinless throughout her life. And that she was later decreed, as had been thought before anyway, as a perpetual virgin. So that these brothers and sisters of Jesus are thought to be cousins by the Roman church. And then she was promoted to advocate, mediatrix, and co-redemptrix with Christ. Well, for us, we have a different authority, and I want to go to that authority tonight, and I want us to see what the New Testament says about Mary and her relationship with her son. So bear with us, fasten your seatbelts, and we're off. I hope you still have the energy to follow with me. For this is a glorious subject. Amazingly, Mark and John say nothing about the infancy of Jesus. Uh, Mark starts right out with the baptism of John and Jesus coming to him and John with a prologue that we heard this morning. But from Matthew and Luke, we learn that Mary was a virgin, Jewish virgin girl, young woman, engaged to a man named Joseph from the tribe of Judah. And before their marriage, each one of them had an appearance of an angel who informed them that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary would become the mother of a person named Jesus. Now Joseph was told specifically in Matthew 1 that this Jesus would save his people from their sin. Now saviors were normally thought of as somebody who saved you from danger, from an enemy, This would be language addressing a king or general, someone with great power. When you talk about sin, you're talking about priestly work. So, my question throughout all of these moments as we look at Scripture is, what was in the mind of Joseph? What was in the mind of Mary as they heard the words that were spoken to them? And how God holds us accountable when we hear his words. Mary was told more. Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. That's what the word means. It does not mean full of grace, which again the Roman church uses to amplify Mary's status through the centuries. It seems all it means is favored one, the Lord is with you. And then he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That expression is almost exactly what the Greek Old Testament says was true of Noah. Noah found favor with God. He was privileged. And behold, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. However, he went on to say, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is kingly language. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Therefore, that Holy One born of you shall be called Son of God. And how will this happen? By the action of the Holy Spirit, she was told. So, Joseph learned of this Jesus, which means Savior, Old Testament Joshua, he saves, Jehovah saves, would save from sin. Mary's finding out he's going to be an incredibly great king as well and will be called the Son of God. Well, Mary went up to see her kinswoman, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says this to her as Mary enters the house. She was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Further blessing on Mary. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's an astounding statement. The mother of my Lord. My Lord is in your womb. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she, you Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment or a perfecting of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The Lord spoke, and the Lord is in her womb. Hello. How serious is this? What are you thinking, Mary, when you hear this? She began her song right after that, that we call the Magnificat. She said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit exalts in God my Savior. Is she thinking of safety and childbirth, like Paul mentions at the end of 1 Timothy 2? Was she thinking of deliverance from Rome? Was she thinking of something else? We don't know. And this is something we also have to keep in abeyance. Scripture doesn't tell us all these details. If it were vital, it would. So we suspend judgment until we have more information. What is Mary thinking? Well, the child is born and the shepherds came, told this astonishing act of these angelic choir singing, and then the magi came. These sorcerers, as they often were, coming from miles and miles, and they worshipped the child. And they gave gifts that were fit for royalty. What's going on? And then we have this passage that I read. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, their purification, it's plural. That's a strange plural. It troubles commentators, and well it should, because in Leviticus 12, after childbirth, the Jewish mother was to go through a ritual of purification. It was of shedding blood in the process of the childbirth. And an offering needed to be presented, and that's what's shown here in this Luke 2 passage. But the child isn't unclean, and the husband is not the one who bled. The wife gave birth, and that would seem to be the only one associated with the sacrifice. Why does it say there? Some opine that it was Joseph who was included in this. In my view, even though Jesus didn't need purification, this is where he begins his identification with transgressors. Under the law, going through a rite 
that normally would apply to a fallen son of Adam or daughter of Adam in the womb and born. Not to him. He's identified from the beginning. And Mary herself, submitting to this ritual, is admitting under the law that this is what was required. Well, then Simeon goes on to say something quite striking. He says, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In my view, that's point one. Point two is, and for a sign that is opposed or will be spoken against. So there are two actions that Simeon is identifying here. Those in whom many, he says, will fall but rise in Israel. What does this language mean? Well, some think that this is talking about two categories. There will be those that stumble over Jesus, and then there will be those that rise in believing in Jesus. But then we have the second phrase, which is a sign that is opposed, which would seem to include those who oppose him as Messiah. In my view, this is a, a statement of, of conversion. Before anyone can rise, they have to fall. Before you can acknowledge Jesus as Lord, you must agree with him about your sin, your state, your fallen, your crushed. He lifts you up. But then it says in the text, and a sword will pierce your own heart as well. Very often this is associated with Jesus' sufferings and his death. And to be sure, that was true for Mary. But as we will see, I think it, is a wider, it has a wider application. We'll suspend that thought and let us persevere. We come to the next instance. And that's in the temple at age 12, a little farther in Luke 2. What an example this is. What a story. On either end of this story is the statement that Jesus... Um, grew, we read in verse 40, uh, when this starts, um, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. At the end of this passage, at the end of Luke 2, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now what this cannot mean is that in this instance, Jesus sinned. He never sinned. He could not sin. He would not sin. And that includes as a child. Now, he did grow, and he had to mature. But what we read in this is of a sinless 12-year-old. And what's striking to me is that in Luke's describing their going up to Jerusalem, he puts this in a strange way. He says that Jesus, when he was 12, he became 12. And then we have something that sort of hovers in the middle of that statement and the main verb about Jesus. And the main verb about Jesus is he stayed in Jerusalem. When Jesus was 12, he stayed in Jerusalem. And we have this phrase in the middle that could be translated, although they had gone up to Jerusalem and they had finished the feast, and were returning home. All of that is parenthetical to the real point of Luke's intention in these verses. Jesus, being 12 years old, and as the boy Jesus, it's reemphasized, stayed in Jerusalem. 
So the purpose Luke has in this verse is to say Jesus intentionally stayed there. And that's reinforced by what follows. Because, as we know, there he is. He's in Jerusalem. He didn't tell his parents. They leave, thinking he's in the crowd. We know the story. They go a whole day. They can't find him. They take a day to come back, and they spend another whole day looking for him, and they find him, and this is what his mother says. When they saw him, they were astonished. Why? Where is he? He's in the temple, and he's asking questions and giving answers. And it says... All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you and in great distress and anguish. It's a very powerful statement. And of course they would have been. This boy who was a model child was undoubtedly had moments of being unintelligible to them even before, but this is unprecedented. Why is he here? What will he say to them? Strikingly, he says, why were you looking for me? The implication is, you should have known why I would be here. And he explains, don't you know that it is necessary? He doesn't say, possible? Or my preference? It was necessary to be about my father's business. It's translated in my father's house. I prefer the understanding in other translations about the concerns of my father. Well, who is that father? It was God Almighty. And as a 12-year-old, Jesus had already learned from Old Testament Scripture, from reading, readings in the synagogue, perhaps himself pouring over those texts, about himself and who his father truly was. No doubt his mother must have told him, I would assume, again, we don't know, do we? Joseph is not your dad. Something incredible happened to me. And that's why you're here. But whether that or no, he's saying, don't you know, did you not know that I must be about my father's concerns? And strikingly, they seem to have no understanding of what he's talking about. It says so. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. There's beginning to be a distance here between Jesus and his mother. And it has to happen. And we'll see that intensify as we move along. Next scene, the wedding at Cana. Jesus is now, he's been baptized, he's begun his ministry. He's up in Cana of Galilee. And they ran out of wine. Jesus is there with his disciples. He was also invited to the wedding. And Jesus' mother was there. And she comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And he says something very striking to her. He doesn't say, why mother? I'm happy to help. He says, woman. What is this to me? And the, the words here are used several times in the Greek Old Testament to translate a phrase that means literally, what to me and you? What is there between me and you on this issue? What do, what do we have to do with each other here? An example is when Josiah went out to fight Pharaoh Necho without asking apparently any wisdom of God. And very tragically, even Pharaoh Necho saying, why are you out here? I'm on God's business. I don't want to hurt you. He was killed. 
And Pharaoh and Echo had said to him, what is there between us? I'm not picking a quarrel with you. Jesus uses that phrase here, and it's very often soft-pedaled, but it should not be. My hour has not yet come, and that's a phrase that we know occurs in John a number of times, doesn't it? The hour of my glorification, when I will be lifted up from the earth on the cross to draw all men unto me. So what have we to do with each other at this moment? And yet after this, he went down to Capernaum, as after the instance in Mark and Luke 2, he went home and he submitted to his, his parents. And he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. We should not understand this as hostility. We must understand this in some way of Jesus creating a distance between him and his mother. Further, we read in Mark 6, Jesus said to people, a prophet is not without honor except where? In his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. But further in Mark chapter 3, we have two instances, ten verses apart, that are striking. Showing the further distance here and showing something more sinister than just distance. Mark 3.20 Then Jesus went into a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So the reputation at home was not only that he was not honored as a prophet, but he was losing his mind, or had already lost it by his devotion to what he was doing to these twelve disparate men. And this group of women that followed them around, providing for them this strange thing that was going on, going from place to place and speaking and healing and so on. And further than that, in Mark 3.31, we read this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. What will Jesus say? He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my mother. Jesus is introducing a whole new level of relationship between him and his mother and between him and every single other person. He's creating a new household. He's creating a new definition of family. Not to destroy the old one, as we'll see, but to say there's a higher level than the physical relationships, than the bonds between husband, wife, parents, children, family members. There's a stronger bond, or there ought to be. And I'm the source of it. And it's going to mean a disruption. It's going to mean the fall before you can rise to a new understanding of what this relationship is. Are you ready for it? Well, we read in Luke 11 a further bit of information that helps us on this point. As Jesus was speaking these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. 
perfect early words about Mary. Blessed are you among women. How graced you are to be able to have this child. What is his response? He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary, how have you listened to what was said to you? How have you understood what your son is saying? Have you thought about why he's doing it? Have you penetrated back to how he was conceived of what was said about him? Rather, blessed is he who hears the word of God and keeps it. In John 7, we read that simple phrase, for even his brothers did not believe in him at that point. Well, we fast forward to the cross. Jesus is hanging from the cross. He's a pulp of a human being. Blood streaming from his face, his face so disfigured, hardly recognizable. He's naked, exposed to the eyes of sinners, writers, Romans, Jews, those who insisted that he blasphemed and must be crucified. One moment of this horrible agony. We read, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. That's John, John the Apostle. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son, except he couldn't point. Maybe he could move his head. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Simeon's prophecy of the sword had struck home. That Jesus was providing from the cross a marvelous remedy for his mother being left an orphan. It's often thought that Joseph must have died at some point perhaps early on in Jesus' ministry. And he, the oldest son, would have had the responsibility to care for her. And he does. His last will and testament to his mother is to hand her over to the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. How how more safe could she be? And what an act of tenderness, what an act of filial care. He had not abandoned her. He had not lost sight of the reality of that honoring of your father and mother even to the point of death. While giving his life, he cares for her. Well, what happened to Mary? What went on? Was there a change? Was there a realization that he wasn't out of his mind and that he was crucified because he simply told the truth when he was put on oath? Here, Acts 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet where Jesus had, from where he had ascended. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
Whatever the state of Mary's soul prior to the crucifixion and resurrection and appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ to his own, here she is, numbered among the righteous, numbered among those who were no longer thinking of him just as man, just as a firstborn, but the Lord of glory. And I suspect that it was very similar to the way Jude, his physical brother, speaks of him in the opening words of that letter that Jude wrote. He says, Jude, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say a brother, <laughs> which could have been understood as a spiritual brother. A bond slave of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those beloved in God the Father and called and guarded by Jesus Christ. And what Jude's showing and Mary's showing and his brothers are showing is what Paul says in one marvelous verse in 2 Corinthians when he says, from now on, we regard no one after the flesh. And what he certainly means by that is no one merely after the flesh. We, it doesn't mean that we don't recognize people and know who they are and care for them and have our relationships. But our principal reflection on thinking of others is no longer after the flesh. And then he says, even if we knew Christ after the flesh, we don't know him this way anymore. We know him on a vastly higher level. That he is God and Lord of all. And we submit to him. We fall before him and he lifts us up. And whatever sword has gone through our old life, has gone through those old affections, those old attachments, no matter how lawful they may have been, if in any sense they are idolatrous, they must fall. And he must be supreme. So my question to us simply is this. It's what happened to Mary as it happened to us. Can we see every single human relationship? Can we see every single human endeavor and aspiration, however lawful and excellent they may be in themselves, as all secondary to the knowledge of Christ, the saving knowledge. Paul said, I count all things as garbage that I may win him and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is under the law, that is, which is by faith, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to close with Questions that might have been put to Mary, but they are really the words of a fairly recent song. Bear with me as you hear this. I wish I could play the people that sing it so beautifully. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby's face, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know? Mary, 
Did you know? The blind will see. The deaf will hear. The dead will live again. The lame will leap. The dumb will speak. The praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know? Oh, Mary, did you know? Let's pray together. God, our Father, how wonderful it is when even the good things that we may have done as unbelievers, good in the sense of not harming others, advancing our best interests, trying to accomplish whatever we could, how good it was the day they all fell. They all fell into the trash heap because they were done on a foundation of sand. They could not abide. They were not works that would be established. They would be burned up along with us. Then you captured our hearts. You made them fall. You broke them because you do not despise a broken and a contrite heart. And you lift us up and you set us as Hannah sang and as Mary sang among kings. And there you are, dear Savior, no longer despised and rejected. But Lord of all and King of all and near to all who call upon you in truth, as friend, as brother, as Savior, as Lord, as Master, as Creator, as the thousand things that you are and are revealed to be. And yet how we praise you that the best is yet to come. Having come once and suffered, you will come again and having nothing to do with sin, to deal with it except to judge it. You'll transform our lowly bodies and make us like your glorious body. And bring us at last to a sinless state of joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Bless these thoughts, these passages, this history to our hearts. May we reflect on it. May we treasure these things up and truly think on them. May we be new people, filled with your Spirit, so thankful to know you and more thankful that you know us. Hear us for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.